So we are going to be in Luke chapter 9 again. We're going to finish Luke chapter 9 this afternoon, Lord willing. And hopefully the rain will hold back and we'll be able to have a nice cup outside. Hopefully, Lord willing. Yes? Luke chapter 9. So we're going to look at verses 28 to the end of the chapter, but I want to actually read the last bit of what we looked at last week, from verse 23 down to verse 27, just as a way of reminder. And Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now, you might remember that uh, um, what we've been seeing so far in the Gospel of Luke is, is Luke wanting to show us that Jesus is gathering a new group of people. He's chosen these 12 disciples. He's doing his, his ministry mainly in this area called Galilee. And he's doing the things that need to be done to answer the question, who then is this? Who is this Jesus? So he shows the authority of God over creation, over demons, uh, over death and over disease. And of course, what we saw at the, at, towards the end of last week was that this kind of came to a peak when Jesus asked his disciples, he says, uh, who do you say that I am? And of course, Peter answers for them, you're the Christ of God, you're God's chosen king. And, and they knew this. I mean, they, they were convinced of this. And Jesus says, I don't want you to say anything to anybody about this yet, even though they had gone out to preach what's called the kingdom of, of God. He says, I don't want you to, to kind of make, a big, uh, make it known that I am God's chosen king yet. And one of the reasons for this was there were still a lot of things they didn't understand about who God's chosen king was, what the kingdom of God was. They had a lot of misconceptions. And because they had those misconceptions, what, what, what Jesus is going to do, or at least what, <laughs> what Luke's going to show that Jesus is going to do, is he's going to spend the next bulk of this gospel showing what Jesus was doing to, to make clear who he is as God's chosen king, how he fulfills God's plan, and, and that includes how he's going to be rejected, how he's going to be beaten, crucified, resurrected, and ascend to heaven. Now what's going on here is Luke is actually going to turn a corner. We're in a section uh, in Luke's gospel when it turns the corner, <laughs> and from basically about chapter 9, verse 51, all the way through chapter 19, what we have is Jesus basically beginning to be focused on going to Jerusalem, to, to get there, to, to complete all the things that the Father has set for him to do. And in doing this, what he's going to do is he's going to, as I said, make it clear who he is and how he's going to fulfill that plan. In a real sense, Jesus is wanting to, to kind of show to the disciples, you're right, I'm God's chosen king, but I want to correct your vision. I want to make sure that you, I deal with the misconceptions you have about God's chosen king. So what we're going to see today is four things the disciples needed to see about who Jesus is, <coughs> about <coughs> what it means to 
uh, uh, to be a part of God's kingdom. And these are things that we need to see as well. So we pick it up in, in verse 28, and it says, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that phrase later. Which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So so Jesus had just said, we read it in the beginning, right? Jesus had just said that there would be some standing there, some who who heard him uh, speak, who would see him or see the kingdom of God coming. Uh, And we believe that this is part of what that fulfillment is, is the fact that here what Jesus is doing is he's showing them something about the glory of God's kingdom in himself. In fact, he uses this word altered. Uh, Luke uses this word altered in verse 29. But the other gospel writers use a word that's translated transformed. And it's a word where we get an English word called metamorphosis. It's the idea of being transformed from the inside out. Now, Luke probably doesn't use this word because there would have been many Greek thinkers, Luke's writing to Greek thinkers, who would have uh, uh, thought about some of the pagan gods and he didn't want them to get confused. But the idea here is not that God's kind of shining a bright light on Jesus, but that Jesus, in a sense, is pulling back his his humanity. He's kind of showing something of his pre-incarnate glory, what he was like before he took on flesh. What was God the Son like? What was the glory of God the Son like? And he's showing them something that people hadn't really ever seen before. And as he does this, he also what's happening is, of course, these two characters, Old Testament characters, Moses and Elijah, show up. And we're going to talk more about them in a minute. So what happens? Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. And, but when they became fully aware, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, uh, departing from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying. And as Peter said these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Now, we know that Moses and Elijah had both been dead for hundreds and hundreds of years. Moses, uh, a couple thousand years before this time. And so, what, what, what we're seeing here, or what... Peter, James, and John are seeing is they're seeing Jesus kind of reveal something about his glory and they're also seeing these, uh, th- this kind of glorified uh, uh, picture or glorified appearance of Moses and Elijah. This is them after death. So they're seeing something pretty radical. Now, now as a completely side issue, nothing really to do with the main idea of the text, but as a side issue. Isn't it interesting that, that Peter, James, and John recognize this guys as Moses and Elijah? Because because there's no way Jews would never build uh, a statue of a prophet like Moses or Elijah because they thought that would be idolatry. They would never paint an image of a prophet because they would think that would be idolatry. And yet they recognize Moses and Elijah. And that tells us something about what it's going to be like when we are glorified, when we are in glory. We're going to know people we've never known before. We're going to recognize people. So yes, will we know our loved ones in heaven? Absolutely. We'll even know people that we didn't love, we didn't even know before. This seems to be the indication here. 
But the main point that we need to see is the disciples are experiencing a, a unique unveiling of, of what it's like, of what Christ is like. Now, of course, when, they, when Peter kind of sees this, now, don't think they were bored and that's why they fell asleep. Basically, they probably walked up this high mountain. They were tired. It was late. And as they fell asleep, then Jesus, uh, his, he, his, he's glorified or he's transformed. And Moses and Elijah show up and they talk about this departure. But what happens is when they wake up and they see this, I can imagine Peter thinking, am I dreaming? What's going on? And he sees this, and he thinks, as, as Moses and Elijah kind of start to sort of disappear, they start to walk away from Jesus, he thinks, oh, wait, 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 don't stop. It's good that we're here. Let's build three tents. Let's just stay up here for a while. This is a great thing for us to be at, Lord. And, and Luke says clearly, Peter didn't know what he's talking about. He didn't know what he's saying. Now, there's a couple things that could be here. It could be that he means, let's build these tents or these tabernacles because this could have been at the time of the Jewish feast of tabernacles. That was a feast where they would kind of build these temporary shelters and they'd stay in them for a few days and they'd celebrate and they'd eat a lot and, and they'd remember how God provided for them when they wandered the wilderness. And it was also a way to look forward to the time when God's kingdom would come in its fullness. And so it could be that Peter, James, and John are thinking, hey, this is great. Let's celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles together. Let's dwell here. It could just be practical that they're just going, let's just stay here. Let's not go anywhere. It's up in the mountains. It's cold. It's going to get dark. Let's just stay here for a while. Either way, Peter has the wrong idea because he's jumping to the wrong conclusion. What Peter's thinking is, okay, here's Moses, the one who gave us the law of God, the first five books of the Bible. Then here's Elijah, sort of the, the, the chief of all the prophets, the, the, the prophet that every other prophet would kind of aspire to the standard to. So you have the law, and you have the prophets, and now you have the Messiah, and these three are on the kind of same level. They're the greats in God's eyes. That's how he's seeing it. But he was wrong. He was jumping to the wrong conclusion. It's also important for us to recognize this cloud that's coming in. It's not just the fog on Mount Hermon that's coming in. This cloud represents the presence of God. We know that because of the voice that we're going to see in a second that comes out of it. But this cloud represents the presence of God. And when the presence of God kind of overshadows them, they're afraid. And so what happens? Look at verse 35. It says then, And when a voice came out of the cloud saying, And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Now here, Peter jumps to the wrong conclusion. These guys, Moses and Elijah, yep, Jesus is, 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 the, is just kind of on that same level. But the Father, God the Father, through this voice, when he shows up there on the mountain, says, no, 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 Jesus is unique. There's something about Jesus that's more than just a prophet. He's more than just the, the lawgiver or the, the, the one who expresses God's word authoritatively. He is the uniquely the Son of God. He's in a unique place, none, none like him. Now, when this is going down, of course, the disciples, they're not really sure what to make of this. They, they definitely had a profound experience. In fact, I think later on in the context, they're feeling pretty good about themselves that they had this experience. We'll talk about that in a minute. But it wasn't until much later on that they recognized what had actually happened, that they actually saw God the Son in his glory. And we know this because Peter would write about this in 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to uh, <coughs> from God the Father, the vo- and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, if you go back and read two Peter chapter one and chapter two, you'll see that what Peter's talking about in these two. Chapters, he's talking about how do we know when God has authoritatively spoken. And when he's talking about this, he doesn't go back, listen, he doesn't go back to a teaching that Jesus gave. He doesn't go even go back to the resurrection. When he wants to go back to say this is the authoritative word of God, he goes back to this time on the mountain when Jesus transfigures himself and shows himself. You see, here's the thing that these guys need to understand, that even when Peter says, you're the Christ of God, and the disciples say, yep, you're God's chosen king, you're the Christ of God, that they needed to see something more specific. They needed to see that he's uniquely the son of God. That's the first thing they needed to see. Second thing, verse 37. They needed to see the failure of those who follow Jesus. In verse 37, it says, on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, A great crowd met him, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, notice, but they could not. Now, if you remember from earlier in chapter 9, what we saw, that Jesus had sent out the, the apostles, the disciples. He'd sent them out with power and authority to heal and to cast out demons. So here's a situation where this, this, this poor young child is both demon-possessed and has a sickness that's connected to that demon possession. Now, that's not the way it always works, just to be really clear. We do not believe, the Bible does not teach that every sickness is demonic. It doesn't teach that, Okay. Uh, nor that if there's something demonic, do you automatically get sick. That's not what the Bible teaches either. But what's happening here is that unique kind of situation. So here's a situation that God had, Jesus had given his, uh, 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 his disciples authority to do, and they failed to do what Jesus empowered them to do. They failed. They didn't do it. They couldn't do it, it says. So what happens next in verse 41? Here's how Jesus answers when he hears this. When he hears that this son or this father is begging for his child's life and his disciples couldn't help. Jesus says, he answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him down to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Now, now understand what's, what's going on here. Jesus does do what they couldn't do. That is important, okay? It's important to understand how good God is. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm really glad that the work of Jesus is not dependent upon the people of Jesus because if it was completely dependent upon us, it would never really get done. But the Lord is so good to work even in spite of our failings. But the thing that we, we want to see here is, is what Jesus says to the disciples and even to those that are are listening. It's like he's saying, you guys should know better by now. 
You shouldn't be in this place where you, you, you fall uh, flat on your face so often. In fact, this, this phrase he uses, uh, faithless and, um, where is it? Faithless and, I lost it. Perverse, that's what it is in, in, in the King James, isn't it? Faithless and perverse. It's faithless and twisted in ESV, but I like the King James better. Faithless and perverse. It's like Jesus is saying, you guys, there's not much of me in you, but there's a whole lot of junk in you. It's like he's saying, how, how did this happen? This idea of being perverse or being uh, twisted or distorted, it, it holds that idea of distorted. In a sense, they've distorted what God wanted them to believe. Maybe what happened is they thought, well, this is cool, we have this power, and they saw this power to cast out demons, and the heal was just kind of some sort of like force they had in their pocket. Like they've been given some, like their Shazam or something, they've been given some supernatural powers, and they can just use it whenever they want. Maybe they were thinking that way, and they were distorting it for their own glory or, or wanting to feel just good about themselves. We don't know for sure what happened, why they couldn't do this, except for the other gospel said this, this stuff only happens, uh, comes out with prayer and fasting, according to King James is what it says. So, so maybe they just weren't prayerful enough. Maybe they weren't depending upon the Father for what they needed. But suffice it to say, Jesus is, is, is wanting to expose, Luke's wanting to expose how Jesus is frustrated because these guys aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. And remember, these are the 12 that he's chosen. These are the 12 that he sent out, and they failed miserably. So what happens next? Verse 43. After it says, all were astonished at the majesty of God, it says in verse 43, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. Now, I want you to picture the scene. He's you know, there's probably a crowd gathered around because wondering why the disciples couldn't cast out the demon. Jesus comes down with the three, uh, Peter, James, and John. He rebukes the, uh, the, uh, the disciples as probably as well as the audience listening. He casts the child out, and everyone's like, wow, it's amazing. Jesus is greater than we thought he was. This is awesome. Who, what kind of prophet is this? And who knows what they're thinking about Jesus, but they're all amazed at what God's doing through this man. And Jesus, instead of saying, yes, yes, it's me, I'm the Messiah, what does he do? He leans into his 12 disciples and he says, let this thing sink into your ears. Listen. And what does he say to him? He says, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. In other words, he again predicts his own soon arrest, betrayal, beating, and crucifixion. But it says in verse 45, but they did not understand this saying. And it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Now we don't fully know who concealed this from them. Is this God kind of holding back something from these disciples because they weren't ready yet? Is it some sort of demonic concealment? You know, the scripture does talk about how the God of this world blinds the eyes of the unbelieving. So maybe this is kind of that happening because they don't want to believe. But, but here's what, what seems to be pretty clear. It's not that they don't understand the words coming out of his mouth. It's just they don't want to hear it. it what you have a situation is they don't understand what Jesus wants them to know because they really just don't necessarily want to know. It's kind of like, ah, oh, he's talking about suffering or losing or something. We, it's, let's not even ask. Let's just kind of hope he keeps doing this miracle stuff. Let's hope his kingdom comes fully soon. 
Now, why is this important? It's important because often what happens is it's, it's when we think about those who call themselves Christians, those who identify as Jesus followers, often what we see is people that aren't really different, very different than other people. I, I can say personally, one of the things that's difficult for me sometimes is sometimes it feels like Jesus followers aren't really better than non-Jesus followers. I mean, it seems like sometimes we're just so slow to forgive. Yeah, maybe we're more moral than some, but I know some unbelievers that are pretty moral, pretty disciplined in their lives as well. But sometimes you think, well, what's, what's going on? And yet, what I think Luke wants us to see by connecting all these things together is that, that, that what disciples need to see is, look, you can be called of Jesus and still fail absolutely miserably. And the reason this is important is not because it's okay for us to, to fail. It doesn't really matter if we fail. Jesus rebukes them pretty harshly, right? He's not happy that they're faithless and perverse. Let's not make a, make a mistake in that. He's not going, oh, it doesn't matter. It matters. But the thing is, if we're going to see who Jesus is and follow him for who he is, we have to look past those who follow him. We, we have to know that those who, who name his name aren't always going to get it right. And this isn't a new problem. In fact, the, the psalmist talked about a similar problem in Psalm chapter 12. In his day, in the nation of Israel, here's what he writes. Help, O Lord, for the godly are fast disappearing. The faithful have vanished from the earth. Neighbors lie to each other, speaking with flattering lips and deceitful hearts. There's a good testimony. Hey, we live in a Christian commune. What was it like? Everyone lied to each other. It was horrible. Now, now the reason I bring this up is not to, to, to slander God's people. God loves his people. But it's to get us to understand, listen, if we're going to, if we're going to uh, deal with our misconceptions, one of the misconceptions is thinking that God's people are automatically always better than those who aren't God's people. Now, here's what I think is true that, I, that maybe I need to make clear. I'm definitely better because of Jesus. I'm better than I was. Not better than many of you, but I'm better than I was. I'm definitely better than I was. As I've said lots of times before, if you knew what, was, what went through my head, and definitely if you knew the kinds of things I was involved in before I knew Jesus, you'd be going, oh yeah, I don't know if I want to be in the same room with that guy. Jesus does change people. and we're gonna, This is kind of part of the point, but the, the point is everyone's still in process. And this is why we don't look to be just like the people who follow God. We look to follow God himself. We look to follow Jesus himself. In fact, here's what's interesting. <laughs> right after their failure, we learn another lesson. And this is the third thing we need to see, the third thing disciples need to see. And that is the value of every Jesus follower. Look at verse 46. After this colossal failure, they couldn't cast out the demon. They couldn't do what God, Jesus had empowered them to do. After this massive failure, after this kind of deafness, a spiritual deafness, and not understand what Jesus is saying, what happens? You, you think they'd be humbled, but no. Verse 46 says, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Isn't that crazy? It, it, it's, it's crazy. It's like, it's like your team's on the bottom of the league. They've just lost for the 16th game in a row. They go into the locker room and they all complain about, they all talk about who's the, the highest scorer this year. 
Like, you lost. Your team's rubbish. Why are you talking about who's the highest scorer this year? In a sense, this is what these guys are doing. They're, 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 they're often, and this is what they often did, they thought too highly of themselves, and they thought too often of themselves. They were focused on themselves. So how does Jesus deal with this? Look at verse 47. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me, and he who is least among you, uh, at least among you all, is the one who is great. What Jesus is doing here is he's taking someone in in that culture would have seen as really not important, especially for those who were being taught by a rabbi. Once a rabbi kind of chose you to, to follow him and to learn of him, and remember Jesus, in a sense, is doing this with the disciples as a rabbi. He's choosing to teach them. Then the, 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 what was really kind of a known saying among the rabbis is, don't waste your time talking to children. The things that you're learning, children will never understand. They're too high for them. So children were considered unimportant, not worth your time, basically. And so Jesus is saying, here you guys are talking about who is great. I want to tell you who is great in my eyes. And he brings this small child and he says, if you receive this child, you receive me. And what he's saying in a a really clear way, or in a really specific way, is if you see them as least, you see me as least. If you devalue them, you devalue me. And in, in, in case you devalue the one who sent me, God who sent me. He's also saying this. He's also saying, listen, here's how I see greatness. I see greatness as childlikeness. Not childishness, not being childish, where not irresponsibility or brattiness or anything else that we might think about, you know, small children. Not immaturity, but childlikeness. That dependency that children show to their parents. When there's a, ha- a healthy child-parent relationship, children are looking to their parents. They're trusting their parents. They're expecting their parents to provide for them. They're going to their parents for help. That's a healthy parent-child relationship. And in a sense, Jesus is saying, this is what I think is great. Those who know how dependent they are upon the Father. Now this is, of course, a rebuke to them. And you get a sense that what happens next is, is really... John's way of trying to show, hey, I'm not as bad as the rest of these guys. Because what happens in verse 49? <clears throat> it says, John answered in verse 49. In other words, he's responding to what Jesus just said about uh, who's great in the kingdom. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Now, Jesus is making a blanket statement that, that means, hey, as, as long as no one wants to give you trouble, hey, they're on our team. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is not teaching some sort of a universalism. Okay, we know that from other clear places in Scripture, even in Luke's Gospel. What he's trying to say is, okay, if this guy is casting out demons in my name, if he really believes that I am, I have the power to over devils, and he's wanting to utilize that power to free people up, well, then why would you stop that? Why would you say, no, sorry, he's not in our circle. He can't be a part. What Jesus is doing here really clearly, listen, is he's forbidding the vilification of other people outside your circle. And this is something that we all do. 
if someone doesn't fit in the group that we want to be in, we kind of think, well, no, no, you're, you're bad. And if we feel bad about not bringing them in our group, usually what we tend to do is we make them a villain. Oh, I, I, I maybe don't like that person, I don't trust that person, so there must be something wrong with that person. Or that person doesn't go to our church, that person doesn't you know, to, to like the, the things I like, so there must be something wrong with that person. Jesus is saying that's bogus. He's saying when you do that, you're devaluing those who are actually following me. See, Jesus wants us to see, he wants his disciples to see, and we need to see this too, is the value of every Jesus follower. And that's especially true for a local church. We really need to make sure as a local church we get to know each other and we value each other and we move towards each other. We want to be those that say, oh, well, you're not on the leadership team. Or you don't go to our house group. This is just about our house group. We don't want to be that way. We want to be those that see people as having value. And we want to make sure we're not seeing ourselves too highly. This is what the Apostle Paul says when he is <coughs> just about to say how God's people are to work together and use their gifts together. Here's how he starts the section in Romans 12, 3. He says, because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given you. In other words, what Paul's saying is, listen, it's not about you exalting yourself. It's about you valuing all people. In fact, that's really important if we're going to use our gifts and talents to bless people. If we think everyone needs my gift, my talent, it's the best. That's not helpful. If we recognize, okay, God, you want to use this to bless people, then I want to be submitted to you. You do what you want to do. It's, it, it, it's not my gifting that's important. It's what you do that's important. It, it's not how I feel when I use the gifts and talents I have. It's how it blesses your people that matters. That's part of valuing every. Jesus follower. Now, lastly, we get to this last section, and this is where we, we really see Luke turning the corner. It says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to Jerusalem. So remember that, that, that phrase we, we talked about, that Moses and Elijah, that glorified there on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. They're talking to Jesus, uh, to Jesus about his departure. In fact, I'll read it to you again. It says, uh, they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, the word for departure there, it's a word exodus. And, and the reason it's Jesus' word exodus, it's the idea that Jesus is higher than Moses. We just already uh, established that. But, it's, it, but the, the reality is, in a sense, Jesus has a ministry similar to Moses in this. Jesus comes and delivers God's people from bondage into the promised land. He has that kind of ministry. And so when they're talking about this on the mountain, they're talking about here's what he's going to accomplish at Jerusalem. When Jesus gets to Jerusalem, that's what he's going to accomplish. And, and then he, and this is, he's, he's focused on this. When it says he set his face, it's this idea that he is determined, he's resolute to get to Jerusalem because at Jerusalem is where the Father is going to provide for every person who's willing to come into his kingdom. It's where the Father is going to deal with the sin of the world. It's where the Father's going to provide a way for us 
to be right with God through Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, and sending of the Spirit. And the reason this is important to, to understand how this connects to taken up is because that word in verse 51 for the phrase taken up, it is ascension. But again, it doesn't just mean the fact that Jesus ascends into heaven. It's all that happened leading up that, all that happened in Jerusalem. And as we get to that at the end of Luke's gospel, we'll see how each of those things is important for our own salvation and for God's kingdom to be part of our lives. But Jesus is, is determined. He's, he's resolved to get there. It says in verse 52, And so he sends messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Now, the idea here is Jesus is going to Jerusalem. This is where he wants to go. On his way through, he wants to pass through Samaria. And we know at this point of Jesus' ministry, he's been to Samaria before. The, probably the woman at the well took place long before this in John chapter 4. And so, so they knew of Jesus, and so he sends representatives to say, Jesus of Nazareth is coming through. He'd like to, to speak if you'd like to listen. And they're all like, oh, great, Jesus is coming through. Where's he going? He's going to Jerusalem to worship. Now, this was an offense to Samaritans because they had their own temple that they thought was not just, just as good, but even better than the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. And so as far as they're concerned, why doesn't he just stay and worship God here? Why does he have to go to Jerusalem? So they say, no, forget it. If he won't worship with us, then he can just pass by. They reject him, okay? And so the thing is with Jesus is, is, is he's focused on getting to Jerusalem. So he, he's going there. And so what happens? Verse 54 says, And when the disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Lord, should we nuke them now? Now here's where they get this idea. In 2 Kings chapter 1, you see Elijah, the prophet, is on this mountain, sort of kind of staying away from the evil king of Israel. Israel the king of Israel at that time was very evil. But the king of Israel wants Elijah in his presence. So he sends a group of soldiers to this mountain, to Elijah, and they say to him, man of God, come down, the king is asking for you. And Elijah says, if I'm a man of God, may fire fall from heaven and you guys get burned. Whoosh, fire falls from heaven, they're toasted. So the king sends another batch of soldiers. They come, same thing happens. Man of God, come down, the king's calling for you. Hey, if I'm a man of God, may fire come from heaven and consume you all. Whoosh. So the third group of soldiers learn their lesson and just were nicely and saying, man of God, please don't kill us. Uh, you know, if it's up to you, if you're okay, would you please come see uh, our master, the king? And he does. So James and John, and remember who Jesus called James and John, their nicknames, the Sons of Thunder. They're like WWE wrestlers, you know, like this, the Sons of Thunder. You know, they're, they're this like really loud and <coughs> you can kind of, <coughs> excuse me, you can kind of picture them, them kind of thinking like, yeah, Lord, let's torch them now, these dirty Samaritans. But Jesus says no. He says no, listen. But verse 55 says, but Jesus turned and rebuked them and then he went on another village. Now, the New King James Version says something different than what my version ESV says. New King James says this. It says, but Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what manner of spirit you are for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives but to save them and they went to another village. 
Now, this is probably added in later on, to be honest, because it is in the other gospel accounts, Mark and Matthew, okay? But whether or not it's supposed to be in Luke, in one sense, doesn't matter, because this is what was said, and this is important, because it's what, it shows us the heart of Jesus. Here are these Samaritans that did reject Jesus. No, you don't want to worship at our temple? Fine. We don't want you coming to our villages. Is Jesus' mindset towards him? No. It's just the opposite. It's just the opposite because here's what Jesus is doing. He is resolved to go to Jerusalem. And why does he want to go to Jerusalem? To die for people like the Samaritans. He wants to die for them. His desire is to, is he's committed, listen, to redeem his enemies. This is so important for us to see. This doesn't take away from the fact that Jesus is the righteous judge and he, he will judge and We'll see all these things, uh, all these truths that come out in Luke's gospel. But it's important that we see this right here, that what Jesus is resolved to do above all things is to redeem these people. He's committed to them. Now, it's on the way to Jerusalem. And, and, and as we said before, from here until chapter 19 of Luke's gospel, all of this is about Jesus' determination to get to Jerusalem to fulfill the Father's will. Now we'll see in the, in, over the next several weeks as we go through this that he's not always in Jerusalem. He's not even in a straight line to Jerusalem, but that's his focus. His focus is getting there. Uh, we, our best guess is this is about six months before he gets there. So the next, the bulk of the book is, is about just the last six months of his ministry. But as they're on the road, here's what we see happen, verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone says to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. You can imagine Jesus is walking with the 12, plus the dozens and dozens of others whom we'll get introduced to uh, next week, who also were following Jesus. The 12 he chose specifically to train up, but, but these other ones were disciples. They were still learning of Jesus and still used of Jesus. But, but these are all following him, and as they're kind of walked down the road, you can imagine the, 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 the villages they pass through going, hey, who is that? What's this crowd here? Who are these people? Oh, I think that's Jesus of Nazareth. And so they go, oh, Jesus of Nazareth, he's the guy who could do miracles and no one ever taught the way he taught. And, and so they come sort of running up and I can imagine some young man, some idealistic young man saying, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, verse 58, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, when, when this man says, I want to follow you, Jesus says, will you follow me even at the expense of your creature comforts? Are you sure you want to follow me even if it's not, it ends up costing you something of your comfort? You don't get what you always want. He said, hey buddy, I can't promise you the chocolate on the pillow as we are on the way to Jerusalem. It's going to be a rough road and it's going to be even rougher still when I get there. Well, then what happens next? Verse 59. So to another, Jesus says to him, follow me. Now I can imagine in this scenario, maybe as Jesus is walking by, someone working in a field near the road stops and watches Jesus as he passes by. Watches the crowd. Maybe hears him in conversation. He's intrigued. Jesus can see he's intrigued and says, hey, come on, follow me. You're welcome. You can come with us. But what does the man said, say? But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now here's an amazing thing, because 
Because as offensive as this might sound to us, it was just as offensive to that first century audience, but not for the same reason. Jesus isn't saying, just blow off your dad's funeral. That's not what he's saying. Because what the young man is saying here, what this man is saying here is, you know what, I'll follow you maybe down the road after my parents are taken care of and I've met those obligations and, you know, then I'll follow you. There's nothing wrong with meeting parental obligations. In fact, it's something that, that Jesus <laughs> rebuked the religious leaders of his day that they kind of used God as an excuse not to meet their parental or responsibilities for the parents. So it's good for us to do that. The point that Jesus is making here is, listen, if you're going to follow me, you've got you to be willing to do that even above family expectations, even above what people think. One of the hardest things about following Jesus is, uh, even in a culture like ours where we're kind of all independent and we pretty much do what we think is best for us, this is kind of what, what seems to be culturally normal for us, but even in our culture, we struggle when our brothers or sisters or parents or Children think that we shouldn't do a certain thing when it comes to following Jesus. And we will be in a situation where we have to think, okay, if I follow Jesus, my family's going to think I'm a bit nuts or they're going to be a bit annoyed with me or think my priorities are wrong. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, are you prepared for that cost? And then lastly, we see another character here. Verse 61 says, yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let, let me first say farewell to those at home. You get the maybe sense with this person that they're all like, yeah, I'll follow you, but I really don't want to do it now, so my excuse is I got to go say goodbye. Now, again, he, this person probably thought they were justified because there is an Old Testament precedent for this. When Elisha is going to follow Elijah, he asks Elijah, please can I first go say goodbye to my household? And Elijah let him go say goodbye to his household. So he's thinking, oh, okay, I'll follow you, but I want to say goodbye first. But you get a sense that this is an excuse. And so Jesus says to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, you're going to follow me? Are you going to do it without turning back? Now, why is this important? How does this fit into us dealing with our misconceptions of, of who Jesus is, or our lack of knowledge about what it means that he's God's chosen king, or what it means to have the kingdom come into our lives. How, how does this fit in? Because one of the things we need to see is the resolve of, our, uh, of Jesus, who's God's chosen king. We need to see how committed he was to God's will, and how committed he is to calling us to commit to the same. See, Jesus isn't content to just say, I'm going to give up everything for you and it's optional for you to give up anything for me. One of the things we have to get through our heads, this is the, this is the message of the whole New Testament, is that the whole reason Jesus had to come and die for us was there is no other way to make us right with God. And yes, he gives us this position of rightness. This is what is amazing about the gospel of grace, the good news of grace, is that Jesus, when he died for us and he rose from the dead, his death pays the price so that we can actually know we have a right standing with God, even though we still fail. He loves us right where we are, saves us right where we are, puts us in right relationship with him right where we are, but he doesn't leave us there. Because to save us, what he's saving us to is to know and enjoy God forever the same way he does. 
And the only way we can enjoy God the way Jesus has always loved and enjoyed God and the way God has always loved and enjoyed Jesus, how God the Father has loved the Son, the only way that can happen is for us to become like Jesus. So his commitment, his resolve is to make us like his Son. That's the Father's resolve that we see in Jesus for us. It's what the Spirit of God does in us is to make us like Jesus. So when Jesus calls his followers to commit, he's basically saying, I'm committed to the Father's will of seeing you changed and making you committed followers of God. Now, I'm going to ask uh, Josh to come back up. And Becky, come back up too. And we're going to sing uh, a song and kind of preparing our hearts for communion. But before we do that, let's think about what we've been reading today. And let's, let's respond to these things, okay? I'm going to ask you some really simple questions. How clearly do you see Jesus? If someone was to say, do you believe Jesus is Lord? You would say, yeah. If someone was to say, what does it mean that Jesus is Lord? You would say, I don't know. What does it mean that Jesus is God's chosen king? Do you see him as that? Do you see Jesus as something more than just a a good teacher, a, a holy man, someone who brought truth to the world like Moses or Elijah? Do you see him as uniquely God's son? How do you how clearly do you see Jesus? How clearly do you understand his words? When he calls people to follow him, do you understand that there's a cost for us to follow? Yes, we saw earlier, right? One of the things we have to understand is those who follow Jesus fail. We, we do need to recognize the, the failure of, of Jesus' followers. All of us will fail. But that doesn't take away from the calling that he puts on us. Come follow me, he says. It doesn't just mean listen to things that I said once. It means actually respond to me as the living, chosen king of the world. And and I want to ask, how willing are you to commit to following him? Are you willing to follow Jesus? Do you... Do you see him as committed to you? Because this is the most important thing. If you don't understand how committed Jesus is to make you right with God, to prepare you for an eternity of enjoying God, if you don't see he's committed to that, you won't commit to him. If you think your commitment to him is what's going to earn you a place with God, earn you a right standing with God, erase all the bad junk you've done in the past, you're not going to follow through. It's going to be too heavy. But when you recognize that God sent Christ to die for your sins, that he sent Christ so that your sins could be washed away, and now Christ is calling you to follow him, are you willing to commit to the one who's done that? Are you willing to commit to him who's committed to you? We're going to just sing this last song. And then after we sing the song, we're going to partake in the Lord's Supper together.